Welcome to Trinity Church. My name is David Ayler. I'm one of the deacons here. Um, this morning we continue our study of Matthew chapter 5. So if you don't have a listening guide and you'd like one, uh, Alex is in the back of the room and if you just raise your hand he can bring you a listening guide. The points this week are not quite as many as DJ had last week, but I trust that the listening guide can be at least helpful for you to take some notes this morning. So this morning in Matthew chapter 5, we continue our study of Jesus' famous sermon on the mount. And it's famous to us, right? Especially us, because we are churched Christians. At least a lot of us in this room have grown up in the church. And so for us, the tendency, as DJ mentioned last week, is to approach a common text like this and to see it as dull, to see it as common, to see it as too familiar. But my hope and prayer for us this morning is just the same as last week, is that we'd continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount and that we would have fresh eyes, that we would put ourselves back in time in the sandals of the disciples and sit at the feet of, De- of Jesus. Because what the disciples are hearing is from Jesus himself in the flesh. And the message of Jesus is totally upside down from their worldview, right? It, it's totally shocking and confusing to them. Jesus is teaching them how to be a citizen in the kingdom of God under his rule and reign, but while living in the kingdoms of this world. And we, we know that the disciples, at least for those of us who have grown up in the church and who have followed Jesus' earthly ministry throughout our own time studying the word, we, we know that the disciples are not the brightest bunch, right? They're They seem to get it, they seem to understand the teachings of Jesus for a while, and then they ask a silly question, or they do something totally counter what Jesus is teaching. It's it's as though they just, they never really got it. Peter especially, right? He seemed to be a perpetual screw-up. But they're off the hook, right? Because they're not church Christians. They haven't grown up under the teachings of Jesus, maybe like many of us have reading this sermon over and over again over the years. So this is all new to them. It's all shocking to them, totally confusing. I mean, think about it. What were they expecting of Jesus? This promised Messiah coming into the world, they would have been expecting Jesus to deliver them from the Roman rulers, right? Their physical situation, setting up a new kingdom with walls to keep out their Roman rulers or whoever is ruling them. They would have had... The same kind of mentality that they had in the past, right? The way God has operated before. But what Jesus is talking about here is totally counter to that worldview, right? He's talking about a real kingdom citizenship. He's pointing at their hearts and he's showing them a deeper righteousness. When the disciples would look to the greatest figure for righteousness in their time prior to Jesus' occupation in the world, who would they look to? It would be the Pharisees, right? That's who they'd look to. But Jesus, being the all-knowing God, can smell the external righteousness, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees a mile away. And so he's showing his followers what real living is, what what it's like to really flourish in this world. Have you ever tried to change someone's worldview before? Have you ever tried to change someone's mind? Those of you who are active in discussing politics with your friends, you know how difficult it is for us to change someone's mind. But Jesus, being the master teacher this morning, presents us with two metaphors, uh, two pictures, 
to help us understand what he's trying to say. And Jesus can do it. He can change the worldview of the people in that audience. So just to sum up what we learned from last week in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, where we were studying the Beatitudes, Jesus was flipping the world, flipping their understanding on their heads, right? He said that the world values strength, power, fame, and money. But God values those who are gentle, meek, poor, and hungry. The world says success and happiness comes from getting ahead in life, no matter what you do, by whatever means you choose. Cutting corners, whatever it takes, being ruthless in business, whatever your sphere of influence is, it's about getting ahead. But Jesus says true success, true happiness is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. The world says suffering is a loss, right? Suffering adds nothing to your life. You should run from suffering. You should run from grief. But Jesus says that suffering is gain. It is truly living. It adds to your life. So Jesus is just transforming the minds of his followers and showing them what it is truly like to live as a citizen in the kingdom of God. And as we watch the disciples throughout Matthew, the book of Matthew, and throughout all the Gospels, we see Jesus' earthly ministry, and it's as though the disciples' eyes are just kind of peeling open. It's like they're getting little bits of understanding here and there, and then they seem to backtrack and, like I said, ask a silly question or do a stupid action, but their eyes are not fully open yet at this point, right? It's not until the death and resurrection of Christ, the ascension into heaven, and finally the Holy Spirit coming down upon them at Pentecost that they, their eyes are open, they're activated, their hearts are regenerate. And then we see the disciples go out into the world and they plant the church, right? We see this evidence in the epistles. I want to read to you a second century letter from an unknown Greek author to a ranking official in defense of this new religion that the disciples are propagating throughout the world. This religion called Christianity. And in this letter, this unknown Greek author describes their wonderful and striking way of life. And it's one of our early apologetic works that we can look to. And it's fascinating because it truly does show the fruits of the labor of the, of the disciples of Christ. So I'm going to read just a snippet of it so we can get an idea. The reason why I'm reading this to you is because we can look at this preview and then we can compare it to the way that we're living our lives today and see if we're living as citizens under Jesus' rule and reign. So it says this, Christians marry, as do all others. They have children, but they do not expose them. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. To sum it up, as the soul is in the body, so Christians are in the world. Let me repeat that. To sum it up, as the soul is in the body, so Christians are in the world. The body hates the soul and wars against it, not because of any injury the soul has done, but because of the restriction the soul places on its pleasures. Similarly, the world hates the Christians, not because they have done anything, done anything wrong, but because they are opposed to its enjoyments. The soul is dispersed through all the members of the body, and Christians are scattered through all the cities of the world. 
The invisible soul is guarded by the visible body, and Christians are known indeed to be in the world, but their godliness, godliness remains invisible. So these early Christians are living as citizens in the kingdom of God while being under the occupation of the kingdoms of this world. Their godliness remains invisible. And what a high compliment to the church. As the soul is in the body, so Christians are in the world. If there's one thing I want you to take away from my sermon today, other than the words of Scripture, take away that simile, that picture right there. As the soul is in the body, so Christians are in the world. It's a compliment to the church. It shows that Christians restrict the desires of the world. We tame its outburst, but we're not just a boundary for the world. We bring it energy. We bring it life. We bring it vibrancy. The world is a dead carcass without Christians living in the world. And I would say that if we as Christians, professing Christians in this room, if we have strayed away from this kind of impact in the world, then we need to repent and return to this way of living. So Jesus being the ultimate teacher helps us understand this way of living and our position to the outside world. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and we'll read 13 through 16 and then I'll start us off in prayer before we get, begin our study. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, I pray this morning that this text that we approach, God, your Sermon on the Mount, God, that we would come to it with fresh eyes, that we would see it for the first time, Lord, and that we would sit at your feet and listen to your teaching. It's in your precious name we come in prayer. Amen. So the question I have for you this morning is this, how do believers live in a non-believing world? How do believers live in a non-believing world? And the answer to sum it up that I would propose to you is that believers will glorify God by impacting the world for good. Believers will glorify God by impacting the world for good. And here in chapter, in verse 13, God gives us our first metaphor. He says, God's people are salt. You are the salt of the earth. Now, this metaphor would have been familiar to first century Jerusalem. Salt had many functions back then. For us today, the primary function of salt that we could think of would just be household salt, table salt, to, to season our food. But back then, salt was estimated, according to one of the commentaries I read this week, to have up to 14,000 different uses at that point in history. The primary uses for salt would have been for seasoning, for healing, a commodity for trade, because it was such a valuable commodity, and as a preservative. And I think one of the primary functions of salt that Jesus is hinting at by using this picture for us is that salt was used as a preservative. And in a world without refrigeration, that is how you preserve food. 
And we still see this type of uh, preserving today. It's an early American technique that dates back to the colonial period of curing meat, food, and vegetables. By adding salt to the food, you draw out from the food the moisture that would normally be there to, um, for microbe growth. The microbes would stay within that moisture within the food, and that would cause food to decay. So knowing all this, knowing that salt was used to prevent food from decay, why would Jesus call believers salt of the earth? What is Jesus trying to communicate to those who are listening to him? Well, it begs the question, what is decaying that needs preserving? Well, the world is decaying. The fabric of our culture is infected by sin, and now we're experiencing social, moral and physical decay. Now you may be thinking, David, that's awfully old-fashioned of you. Well, the Bible accounts for this kind of worldview. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the Bible says that everything was created and it was good. And then later in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve ate fruit from the forbidden tree and sin entered the world. They disobeyed God. They ran from God. They were ashamed. And this is just the first of many sins, sins of all men that have propagated down through the centuries And what's decaying the world is not just one sin of one really bad person or the Hitlers of the world or corrupt political leaders today. That's not what decays society. What decays society is all sin of all people. Really bad people and the moderately bad people and the not so bad people. We're all bad people. No one is righteous, not even one, is what the Bible says. And so sin is causing this decay in society. But Christians... It's not that we're perfect, it's not that we can just fix everything, but our hearts are new. We are a new creation in Jesus Christ. When we are reborn, our hearts are regenerate, and we have new desires that the world can't understand. The world considers it all foolishness, like pursuing holiness, pursuing good works to glorify our Father who is in heaven. So the implication is that Christians, the followers of Jesus, preserve the inherent goodness of God's good creation by the way We live our lives in this decaying world. We push back the decay of sin. We counter the decay of sin. We draw out from it that which makes it spoil, and we preserve the goodness of the way the world was designed, the way the world ought to be. And when we do this the right way, when Christians are not hypocrites and we live pursuing these things, we show the world a preview of what society should look like. One of the commentaries I read this week Put it like this, Christians are to present to the world a preview of the remade world. The world should see a glimpse of the garden and a preview of the new heaven and new earth when they look at you. Wow, what an incredible responsibility we have. You know, being a father and a husband, I see sins of adultery and selfishness that just tear families apart, but when we build our families in Christ's likeness, we present to the world an image of what God intended for family. And this applies to every aspect of our lives. Another important function of salt that we don't need to overlook that the disciples would certainly have thought of back then is that salt was an extremely valuable commodity back then because of its many uses. The English word salt has the Latin root sal, S-A-L. It's in other um, English words like salary. Roman soldiers back then would actually get paid in salt, called salt money or salarium. 
And that's where we get the idiom, he is not worth his salt, right? So if a soldier isn't doing his job, you could say he's not worth his salt. He's not worth what he's getting paid in salt. And so Jesus' audience would have made the connection that this way of living, this true way of living, this upside-down way of living, living as a Christian, Christians are valuable to the world. Our influence is like the influence of salt on earth. We are multifaceted in our usefulness and effectiveness in the world. Christians preserve the world through our good works. We season the world with our salty speech. And we heal the world through the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have great value in this world when we pursue Christ faithfully. But Jesus offers us a warning in the second half of verse 13. He says, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. See, salt is most effective as a preservative when it's not mixed with foreign elements. In the same way, Christians are most effective when not mixed with the pollution of this world. We are distinct like undiluted salt. And there are Christians out there that try so desperately to show the world that we are like them, that we are typical people, that we are normal people, that we're not weird. But the truth is we are weird. Every Christian is weird. And if we compromise, if we allow ourselves to be influenced by the desires and pursuits of the world, we lose our effectiveness in this world. We lose our saltiness in this world. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Foolishness. The world outside of us looks to the pursuits of Christians and they say, Why are you doing these things? Why are you pursuing holiness? Why are you pursuing godliness? Why are you pursuing righteousness? All these pursuits don't add anything to your life. For us Christians, we are reborn. We have a we have new life, and these things that are foolish to them, they are the power of God. So the truth is we are weird, right? The Bible says so. And I know each and every one of you this morning, you're all a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> I include myself in that. We're weird, and we need to stay weird. It's like the slogan, keep Louisville weird. We need to keep Christians weird. That's the goal. We need, we need to not lose our saltiness in this world. Christ's likeness is what makes us weird. It's what makes us distinct as a community. See, throughout Jesus' sermon, he is aiming at the hearts of his disciples. And he is showing them a deeper righteousness. Not the external righteousness of the Pharisees, but he is showing them something that goes beyond that. Something that is real. And this righteousness, the disciples will come to find that this righteousness is embodied in Jesus. And he eventually imputes this righteousness on us at the cross. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this, Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. When Jesus says, salt has lost its taste, it should be thrown out. He's telling us that Christianity, absent of Christ's likeness, is worthless. So we can go out in public, 
wearing our faith on our sleeve, wearing Christianity on our sleeve. But if we walk poorly, the way that you talk to people, the way that you treat people, if that's poor, then you are worthless to the kingdom of God. Your life says nothing about the goodness and glory of Jesus. Jesus uses these wonderful illustrations, salt and light, to show us our position to the outside world and how we are to behave. And he gives us another one here. God's people are light in verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So for us today, this is an easier picture for us to understand. Light has one primary function for us, just like it did back then. It's to illuminate the darkness. And those of us who have grown up in the church and have listened to the teachings of Jesus, this is familiar language anyway that we see in Scripture. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but has the light of life. That's in John 8, 12. So Jesus teaches throughout the Scriptures that the world is living in darkness without knowledge of God. He describes the darkness as being held captive and being like a blind man. And like we read earlier in our scripture reading for today, in Isaiah chapter 42, in verses 6 and 7, it says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. To open the eyes of the blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. The world is living in the dark. Now you may say, well, how can this be? How in the world is the world living in darkness? I mean, we have Google, we have the cloud, we have this bank of information that we can go to instantly on our phones. How is it that the world is living in the dark? We have more access to information than ever before. We're not in the dark ages. We've been through all these different periods of the Renaissance, Enlightenment, modern philosophy, the Industrial Revolution, the Information Age. We have more knowledge today than ever before. No, it must be Christians. Christians must be in the dark in their 2,000-year-old religion. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, it says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's God that delivers us out of the darkness. It's not world knowledge that delivers us out of the darkness. The only knowledge is knowledge that takes place in this process is our spiritual knowledge of Jesus, our, our faith in Jesus. So the truth is, you can know everything there is to know about the world, and they could all be good things. You could be a physician and studying medicine. You could be a scientist and studying all sorts of different science. All these things are good that maybe you're pursuing in life. Whatever your occupation, whatever you say that you're an expert in, those are all good pursuits, but they're not saving knowledge. Saving knowledge is knowledge of Jesus Christ. So if you lack the foundational knowledge of the very person who authored all those things into existence, then you remain in the dark. And for us believers this morning who once were in the dark, that truth should break our hearts and motivate us to share the light of Christ with those who still remain in the dark.
See, the Bible teaches that the church is the mechanism that God has purposed to illuminate the world. The church is the mechanism that God has purposed to illuminate the world. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10 says this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I remember when I was nine years old, my dad took my sister and I to Mammoth Cave. And we followed a tour guide down into the cave. I'm sure it wasn't the most challenging trail that we took, but for a nine-year-old, it was pretty intimidating to say the least. I mean, this was a time without LED lighting. The cavern was dimly lit with incandescent lights. And I remember going about 10 minutes into the trail, and our, our group went down into a central cavern. And the tour guide began to walk over to the wall, and there was a black box on the wall. And it was a light switch. And so, okay, he was getting ready to turn out the lights. Um, the tour guide began to describe to us the darkness we were getting ready to experience. And he began to say things like, you know, starlight and moonlight, that's actually a substantial amount of light that we take for granted. And any of you who have gr- grown up in a rural area know, you know, if you're away from a city, how dark it is. It's very dark when you're out there and you just see stars and the moon. But there's actually light there. Well, he turned out the light and just this flood of darkness overwhelmed me. And I'm a claustrophobic person. I began to have some anxiety, a little panicky. And it was as though my eyes were just thirsting for light. And after a few minutes, the lights came back on. But he didn't turn on the light switch. What he did was... He, tur- he lit a match, a tiny little match, illuminated this entire cavern. And it was like a torch, because my eyes just weren't ad- adjusted to it yet. And I had to actually squint from this tiny little match. Now, I'll give you that uh, illustration about my life, because God's people, we are called to be that match, that tiny little light. See, the world doesn't need more Billy Grahams. I mean, it would be nice to have more Billy Grahams, right? But... What I'm getting at is the world needs more professing Christians living it, living the life of Christianity within your sphere of influence, to light your match and illuminate the cavern, your section of this dark world. Uh, The disciples would not have thought of this, um, but maybe Jesus did because he's the all-knowing creator of the universe. Fast forward from the Sermon on the Mount to Year 1672, Isaac Newton published a series of experiments involving the use of prisms to refract refract light. So Isaac Newton would run white light through a prism, and what he discovered was that white light is made up of a bunch of component colors. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet, right? The colors of the rainbow. So light has a spectrum to it. So Think about it that way. We believers, we all have different gifts. Some of us have different gifts of teaching and preaching. Some of us have different gifts of hospitality, leading worship. Whatever your gift may be, 
We are all gifted and we are all a part of that spectrum of Christ's light. In verse 16 of Matthew chapter 5, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the primary application question I have for you all this morning is this. Are you living a life that is worthy of your identity of being salt and light? I pose that question a little strange. I use the word identity. Are you living a life that is worthy of your identity as salt and light? Why do I pose the question this way? Well, Jesus uses some very definitive language here, this pronoun you. You are salt. You are light. He does not say you can become salt. You can become light. He says, he does not say if you follow me long enough, you will become these things. He says, no. Those of you who are reborn, you are positionally salt and light. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, right? You, you are too elevated. Your light is too bright. You cannot be hidden. It is who you are. You are light. And you are salt. Put it another way. The fact that you are salt and light is directly tied with your justification in Jesus Christ. When your heart is regenerate, you are reborn. You have been declared salt and light to this world. I like to think of it this way. My name is David Richard. I was named after my father, Richard. I am positionally declared son of Richard. It is on my birth certificate. I am David Richard, and nothing can change that. But here's where we get down to the application of the sermon. Am I truly acting like the son of Richard today? I can choose to wake up in the morning, and I can choose to betray my father. I can choose to, be, to act in a way that is dishonorable to my father. So though we are positionally salt and light, we must remember each day to be actively salt and light because this is a command of Jesus. So let's get down and dirty with some more application questions this morning. When you are at work and someone has a conflict with you, are you quick to tear them down with your words or deeds? Or are you gracious to them? thinking the best of them? What about on social media? Are you quick to argue with someone on Facebook or whatever the platform? What is the true intention of your comment? Is it to speak truth lovingly? Do you have salty speech? Or is it to tear someone down? What about your hospitality towards others? Are you hospitable because you see the needs of others? Or are you hospitable because you have something to show off? Here's one that is truly convicting, and I've never worked in the food industry, but working in retail, I can kind of relate to this. Um, Do you go out to eat after church and treat your waiter or waitress with kindness, or are you rude to them? Walk in wisdom towards outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that no one 
so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's Colossians 4, 5 through 6. Here's a challenging question. How is your gospel witness? When is the last time you shared your testimony with an unbeliever? When was the last time you explained to someone they are a sinner in need of a Savior? These are such challenging questions. But by the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, as we continue our study in the book of Matthew, we discover that the gospel has a worldwide impact and implication on our lives because we are commanded to go and teach all nations and to baptize them. And this is actually our church mission statement. We'll eventually get there in our study of Matthew, but I'll go ahead and fast forward to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's included in our position as salt and light to this world, the gospel. We need not to forget to share the gospel and to teach and to baptize. This is how we glorify God by impacting the world for good. Being salt and light and the Great Commission, it's more than just a command, it is a privilege. And our motivation can be this. Let's remember that we were once in darkness, but we have been saved by God's grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, you are the ultimate teacher. Thank you so much, Father, for teaching us this passage this morning, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would go about this week, Lord, and that we would wake up each day and recognize our position, Lord, as salt and light to this world, God, and that we would not be hypocrites, Lord, that we would walk in wisdom towards outsiders, Lord, that we would realize that we were once in darkness, and that we were transferred out into the domain of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption of forgiveness of sins, Lord. God, I pray that we would recognize that there are those who are in darkness right now who thirst for light by the authorship of you, God. The church, we speak the gospel, Lord. If we speak the gospel, Lord, the voice of the shepherd will propagate into the darkness, God, and then you will bring about your church. That is our great privilege, Lord, and the ultimate way, Lord, that we can be salt and light to the world. I pray these things in your name. Amen.